Uh, I am Karen McNary. I'm going to be reading our text today, which is found in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 6 through 25. And it reads, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the, the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the Milo inward. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem, Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Epar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphalet. I practiced y'all. All right. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give me them into my hands? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hands. And David came to Baal, Perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal Perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up, go around to their rear, and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Christ Central. All right, let's try it one more time, right? Good morning, Christ Central Church. Good morning. It is always good to be in the house of the Lord with God's people. Amen. Um, what a joy it is to be together after a long week, as our elder Ibrahim shared with us. We pray for you, we thought of you, and we're still continuing to pray for you after a long week that all of us had. We're definitely tired from all that we experienced this week, but we are also grateful that we could gather like this to worship the Lord this morning. Uh, we definitely miss Pastor Brown's voice this morning as well. Um, Pastor Brown and uh, Kelly has uh, been exposed to COVID-19. That's why they're not here with us and out of abundance care, not only for them, but for you, they'll be quarantining for a while. So please do pray for the Brown family during this time um, as they're away. And uh, just to piggyback off a little bit of what um, our elder Ibrahim shared about sabbatical, 
we, um, as a congregation, belong to what we call a central presbytery, and we are a congregation of PCA, Presbyterian Church in America. And this sabbatical is actually not something that's unique to our church and our context. It is actually pretty normal in our presbytery, and generally every seven years, a pastor who's been at a church for over, in you know, one church for seven years, take a sabbatical. So if you do the math, Pastor Howard should have been, have, have gone at least two sabbaticals, and he's actually coming up on the third sabbatical. That's why the leadership at our church, uh, we realized we really need to do this, and we really need to do this not only for the Browns, but for our church as well, um, because the sabbatical has its roots in the scripture, in Genesis chapter 2, as God rests after creation, as well as, as we see in the Levitical law, there is that rest time. Sabbatical means rest, to pause, to celebrate, to reflect, and oftentimes pastors are given the sabbatical time to not only evaluate where they are in their walk with the Lord, but as a church, we're able to pause and reflect what God has done in the life of this church as we look forward to the season that is to come. It's almost like uh, pausing to reflect, to push forward. So we want to invite you again as a church. More information will come for you. We have a committee that has been formed to think about all that we need to think about, and more information will come to you about sabbaticals. But please do uh, prepare with us as we prayerfully uh, plan and send our um, beloved pastor and his family on time of rest. We're continuing in our sermon series in 2 Samuel 5. As last week, Pastor Howard concluded his third part, uh, three-part series on David being crowned the king. We saw what it means for David to be the king, and now he begins the reign as a king of Israel. And we get into chapter 5, and now we look at his first acts, first actions as a king over this united kingdom. First hundred days in the office is a political term that is used quite often. Uh, measuring the first 14 weeks of a presidential term to measure the early success of a president. The first 100 days took on a historic meaning when President Franklin uh, D. Roosevelt, after being in the office on, on his first 100 days in office, uh, made series of reforms or deals on the onset of Great Depression. Although many presidents after that uh, who follow FDR did not have the kind of an impact that he has had due to the context and the timing of their actions, still to this day, the 100 days is used to measure and to give us a picture of what the presidency will look like for the next four years. That's why during the period after the election, the time now, often the president-elect um, or the a sitting president, whatever may, whoever may be in the office, uh, puts out a transition plan that often reveals the promises of what they're going to do, a glimpse of what is to come in the first 100 days in the office. And the president-elect Joe Biden has done that as well. And we get a first glimpse of the sort of expectation that we can have of what the presidency would be. And if there's anything like the first 100 days marker for David, Today's text is it. The chapter 5, verse 6 to 25, gives us a glimpse of the first hundred days of David's kingship. Because past three weeks, we looked at David's inauguration ceremony of some sort. 
As he was crowned the king, we saw in verse 3, the king makes a covenant with the people at Hebron. His inauguration speech of sorts. And what we find in verse 6 is upon the inauguration of the king, now he moves forward with the plans as well as the, the vision of what he's going to be. And although there are some parts in this chapter that is not in the chronological order as we will see here, we do get to see a glimpse of what is to be kingship of David after all the chapters we've been waiting for him to become the king. And just as the first 100 days marked not only the success of the presidential term and a potential direction for the nation, what David does next here in this chapter sets the course for the Israelites that is to come. And of course, for us as a church, spiritual Israelites in the New Testament times, we get to see a glimpse of what we are called to do as we follow King Christ, as David represents the type of King Christ that is to come. So the question and the title of the message today is the transition plan of King David, the first 100 days, and we get to see what is included in David's transition plan, the first 100 days of his kingship. And first thing that he does is to stay close, or rather, stay with God who sets him as a king. One of the favorite songs in the Kim household lately is to listen to all the music of musical Hamilton. And I'm sure a lot of you like this song too, and songs as well. And I'm not going to sing a song for you because I can't sing to save my life. But one of the songs we love listening to is the song that's titled, Room Where It Happened. Right, Room Where It Happened. And the song goes something like this. Again, I'm not going to sing it for you to save you from misery. Uh, two Virginians and an immigrant walk into a room diametrically, diametrically opposed, that's why I'm not rapping or singing, opposed, foes, and they emerged with a compromise, having opened doors that were previously closed. No one was there in the room where it happened. All right. It was seen as a stroke of genius, not only because Hamilton got what he wanted, but Washington, D.C., the nation's new capital, was located strategically between the northern states and the southern states thus bringing these two divided, divided states together. Jerusalem, as we look at this chapter, represented the strategic location of a capital. David here, who is from the tribe of Judah, from Bethlehem, becomes a king over all the Israel, and he is in Hebron, which is in the south, southern region of Judah. And now as he thinks about what the capital of his nation to look like, Jerusalem, which was in the land given to Benjaminites, where the tribe where the previous king Saul is from, is located in between the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern Israel tribes. It rep represented a perfect place, perfect location, an ideal military stronghold to unite this two divided nation as one. On top of that, Jerusalem was so well defended, it was daunting to overcome. Jebusites, as we find here, who are occupying Jerusalem at a time, has been doing so since the day Israel enters into land of Canaan. That's why we find in Joshua chapter 15, 63. But the Jebusites, all the way back into Joshua, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive them out. 
So the Jebusites dwell in the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day, it says. And for a number of years, the Jebusites fought off any attempt to overtake Jerusalem from all the oncoming enemies that were coming again and again and again. They were almost like the heavyweight champion. They fought off championship round again and again and again. And Israelites just could not, was not able to drive them out of the land. And they're so confident in their ability to fight off any kind of attacks that are coming their way, they start mocking David and his men by saying, you will not come in here. The blind and the lame will ward you off. Almost to say, even if you were to come to us, even the people who are blind and lame will be able to fight you off. They were so confident in their ability to preserve their city. But as we find out, they were wrong, weren't they? In a clever military maneuvering of using the water canals, David conquers the land, conquers the city. In turn, the Jebusites uses his own words of Jebusites to mock them. In verse 8, we see David said to them on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, get him, uh, let him get off the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore, it is said the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. It's not saying that David hates uh, the people who are lame and blind is saying that he's use, using that word to mock the Jebusites who said even the blind and lame will fight them off. David's saying, oh, well, you see, I have conquered you. So David is successful here. In Jerusalem, as you know, throughout the rest of the history, is known as the city of David, strategic, military, and political capital of his new kingdom. But is that all? You may say that uh, influential enough of an action of David to make this uh, the capital of his new kingdom, but there is a deeper meaning as we look at the reasons why he's able to do this. It is not only military move, it's not a political genius move on his part, but there is also spiritual elements to the reason why he makes Jerusalem his capital. Remember how the Israelite kings are judged based upon? Oftentimes, if we, as you look at the prophetic books later on, as well as Chronicles, we look at the king of Israel and say, did they obey the commands of the Lord? Were they close to God? Were they good in the eyes of the Lord or bad in the eyes of the Lord? And the way it was determined whether the king was good in the eyes of the Lord or the bad in the eyes of the Lord was if they obeyed the commands of the Lord that was given to them. When we look back at Deuteronomy, when the original command was given to the Israelites as they entered the Canaan, this is what God told the Israelites to do in the, uh, chapter 7, verse 1 and 2. Deuteronomy chapter 7 says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, uh, Gergesites, the Amorites, Canaanites, Perites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you, may, you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show mercy to them. You see what David does here in driving out the Jebusites is not only a military move, it's not only a political move, but what David is representing here, he's saying that I'm going to go back to the law of the Lord. What God commanded the Israelites a long time ago and I'm going to be faithful to what God has commanded us to do. And I'm going to be a king that lives by the command of the Lord that God gives to us. And later on in the same chapter of Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 18, God outlines what king ought to do. And he says, and when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a book, uh, 
a book, a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, and he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. So what David does by conquering Jerusalem and driving out the Jebusites is basically saying, I'm going to keep the law of the Lord close to my heart. I'm going to read it and learn to fear God and keep the words that God has commanded me. And I'm going to complete the work that God has tasked the Israelites to do. What he's demonstrating in his first days in office is saying, my policy as a king is going to be a king that obeys the commands of the Lord and be close to the law of the Lord all the days of my life. Church, I think one of the dangers that we face in this election season is placing all our hopes and dreams on this week alone, right? As many comments flooded what the divided nation meant, I thought this person's thought captures what we're called to do as a church, as a nation, well. This person said, election night or the week results does not mean that we are done with what we're called to do together. Just because so-and-so was elected to be the president does not negate the fact that we're still called to do what we're called to do together as a nation. And all the more so for the church, isn't it? Church, Christians, followers of Christ. What are we called to do? What are we still called to do no matter who's in the office? Micah 6 right? Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly before God. Matthew 22, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and love your neighbors. Matthew 28, go preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. And what's most important for us to remember is that because no matter who won the office, the problem of today does not automatically disappear overnight. And we know that our calling as followers of Christ must continue in doing justice, in loving mercy, in walking humbly before God. The question that we ought to wrestle with this morning is, what will your hundred days be marked as we follow Christ today? Church, are you still following the commands of the Lord? Are these areas in your life that you must repent of and surrender to our King? We're still called today to stand for the lives of the unborn babies. We're still called today to stand for the lives of black lives that matter. We're still called today to serve the needs of the city and of our nation to mourn with those who mourn. As one person shared, we must remember that because your candidate wins or loses, it doesn't wash away the tears and pains of yesterday's past. It doesn't take away from the sins of the past. And here is the gospel in all this. As David moves to make Jerusalem his capital, and he makes this move to stay vigilant and close to the Lord's command, as God commands the Israelites, the kings, to do in Deuteronomy chapter 7, what we find is that there is actually someone in the room where it happened. It is not just David's political move 
or military genius that gets him to the city, or even desire to, command, to, to keep the commands of the Lord, what we see in verse 10 is that not only did David strive to be with God, the Lord, the God of hosts, was with them. And David became greater and greater, he says in verse 10, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with them. Someone was already in the room where it happened. And the same Lord, the God of hosts, Scripture reminds us, is with us. And that's grace. And that's the gospel, church. He's ever before us. He's ever present in the time of our need. Our gospel is to be where our God is, but also move forward in the humble obedience of the call that he gives us today. And that's the first marker that we see in David's 100 days. The second marker that we see is not only does David strive to be close to God at all times, we see David does what God commands him to do all the days of his life. Not only David goes back and looks at the commands God gives him in the past to obey the Lord, he continuously goes to God and obeys God's commandment in the future as he governs his kingship. In my background, in my cultural background, we celebrate what we call a pegil, and that's a Korean term for 100 days. And you're wondering, what is that all about? In my Korean background, in my cultural background, we celebrate the first 100 days of child's life. So if a baby's born, we wait for 100 days, and then when 100 day hits, we gather to celebrate the fact that baby has made it for 100 days. And the history behind it goes something like this. A long time ago, in Korea, childhood diseases were common, and the survival rates for the newborn babies were really low. And as I find out more and more about my family background, I find out more and more about this, the harsh realities that my ancestors experienced, losing many children in the early parts of uh, their birth. High death rate was due to a lack of medical information, poor hygiene, Korea's harsh winters and humid summers, and many other childhood-related diseases. And to protect the child, and to give the best chance for survival, the parents refrained from taking children outdoors until the 100th day. And when 100th day hit, it was almost like free for all. It's like, he has survived. He will survive. Well, let's come and celebrate. So I remember when my son was born. And then, OK, mind you, we were here, right? We are born in the States. So he was born, and we were thinking, OK, 100 days is not that big of a deal here, right? We're thinking, all right, then we may celebrate the first birthday. But my parents looked at me and said, how dare you? You must not. And gave us all the to-dos and what not to-dos for the first 100 days of Seth. And guess what we did? We did everything they told us to do. We said, all right, mom and dad, because you have experience, and not only because you have experience, because we don't know what to do with this child to begin with, we're going to do everything you command us to do by not Doing, we like raise the temperature, lower the temperature. It was all so many rules to do, all the hopes of doing so that as we were growing as a parent, we wanted to keep this baby alive. David's first act was to keep the law that was given to him by staying close to God. The second is learning to go to God, listen to what God commands as he leads the nation in his first hundred days. 
Because scripture reminds us as we look at chapter 5, as soon as David becomes a king, he gets tested right away, doesn't he? His kingship is threatened right away. The familiar enemy of Israelites is knocking on the doorsteps again. Now the Philistines, when they heard David became a king, they muster up their, king, uh, their military and say, we've got to do something about this. Just like we have done something to King Saul, we're going to teach King David a lesson. So verse 17 says, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed the king of Israel, all the Philistines went up and searched for David. But David heard of it and went down to stronghold that the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. Remember the last time the Israelites faced Philistines? It actually didn't go well for Israelites. They were completely defeated. And the fierce battle, which resulted in not only annihilation of the nation, but also the death of their king, Saul, and his son, Jonathan. And it's not like Philistines all of a sudden became weaker, right? But what we find in this instance, in the two battles that happened, is that David completely destroys Philistines. How dominant was the victory? The two phrases that describe the end of the battle is this. In verse 20, it says, David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there, and he said, the Lord had broken through my enemies before me like a flooding, breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. In verse 25, and David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geva to Gezer. When it says breaking the flood, more importantly, when the Philistines are completely destroyed, they're running away, and they leave their idols that they brought to the battlefield. That reminds us of another time the similar thing happened to the Israelites. If you recall, back in 1 Samuel 4, even before Saul becomes a king, Israelites faced the same Philistines, and they were in a battle that lost 30,000 Israelites. Not only so, they lost the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Now the table has turned completely here. In 2 Samuel 5, the Philistines are now running away, leaving their idols behind, and now the Philistines are facing a foe that will change their course of their life forever. But again, what is so remarkable about this victory isn't that David's military might is so great. We know that he's a great general, but what this text highlights for us time and time again is not only that David is a great leader, but what David does in preparation and in the process of defeating his enemy. Verse 19, it says, When David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hands? The Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give Philistines into your hands. Verse 23, again, when the Philistines come up to him again, and when David inquired of the Lord again, he said, You shall not go up. Go around to the rear. Come against them opposite of balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the top of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of Israelites. You see, in both fights, both great battles, time and time again, what David displays is something that we saw Saul didn't do. Saul forgets to do. Saul fails to do. Remember Saul, when there's a battle ahead, he's thinking, how can I fight this? How can I fight this? How can I fight this? But here David, as the battle lines are drawn, what he's saying is, I need to go to the Lord. 
and inquire of the Lord, what I must do, what must I do? And here is what sets apart David's kingship from Saul's kingship. What David does here again, again and again, consistently, time and time again, he goes to the Lord, asks the Lord what he must do, inquires of the Lord, seeks the Lord's command. But most importantly, than just seeking God's will for what he must do next, what David does next marks his kingship. Verse 25, it says this, and I think this is one of the most demanding, yet so simple, yet most difficult verses for all of us today. And hear the words in verse 25. And David did as the Lord commanded him. It's as simple as that. David did as the Lord commanded him. There's no other way to say this. David goes to the Lord, asks for what to do, and God commands him, and David simply obeys and does what God commands him to do. And church, how many of us struggle with this, right? We see that all throughout the scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, it doesn't matter. And I see that all throughout my life, as in my pastoral ministry, we're great at seeking God's commandment or seeking to be present in the place of God's will to be revealed to us. We love, and we always say this, I want to be sitting under God's commandment. I want to be sitting under good preaching of the Lord because I need to learn. Teach me, teach me, teach me. But the question is, are you willing to obey? Are you willing to embrace the law of the Lord, even the parts that you don't like? And are you willing to go in the ways that God commands you to go to? Because sin, by definition, means I don't want to do what God commands me to do. The struggle that we have is not that we don't know what God wants us to do. The question is, do you want to do it or not? Are you willing to do it? Are you fully embraced in it? Are you 100% surrender to what God commands us to do? And is that what is written about you? Not only that you're here sitting in the house of the Lord, inquiring of the Lord, listening to the Lord, praising the Lord in the songs, but when everything's all done, does God say, he is my obedient child who listens to my command and does do as I am commanding him to do? Is that what is written about you today? Is that what's written about you when you're confronted with your sin, when you're exposed in your sin? As God sends his servants, your leaders, your mentors, your friends, your spiritual elders to come to counsel, perhaps to rebuke, to say, are you willing to obey and to come back to the Lord? Are you listening to the God's commandment this morning? Or are you in the mindset of, well, this is okay, that is okay, but not that. You know what is the most scary place to be? as a Christians, is to know it all. To know all that God wants you to do. And not being able to do it. The most scariest thing is knowing what pleases the Lord, but not wanting to do it. And not being willing to do it. And by shaking the fist at the Lord and say, how dare you tell me to do this? I'm moving on to the next thing. As I thought about this election season, no matter what side you may fall in this polarized society, if you're a follower of Christ, one thing is absolutely clear in all fronts. 
we all have many ways sinned, fallen. We're all at odds at many times, and honestly, we do not consider one another as better than ourselves. And it's not just the TV and the people out there or the political sin outside of these doors. It's in here. It's in the church. It's in these very aisles at times. It is with one another. And may the scripture offend us. We have turned to the wicked ways in labeling one another, calling names. We have refused to listen, hurt others, disregard one another's pain, especially that of our black brothers and sisters. And what do you think God is commanding us to do in this state today? What do you think as God looks at us today, looks at our church today, what do you think God is calling us to do? Continue in our wicked ways and demonizing one another? By no means, right? By no means. As we see, as we pray through this challenge throughout this week, one of the prayer challenges was set forth by our pastor was in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. And let me read this to you again. And this is a reminder for us as a church in this season of our life today. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. How do we unite divided land? How do we unite divided church? Here, look at what the scripture tells us. Repent. Repent together. Turn from your wicked ways. As a church, the church has lost so much of its credibility in this election season. Whether you support this candidate or not, or this candidate or not, the church has lost so much. Church, can I invite us this morning, repent of the ways we have labeled each other, how quickly we have jumped to judge, to push each other out, to not make place in this place for marginalized people to come in. Rather than making space for others, we have pushed them away. Rather than embracing one another, we have drawn lines to, as if to say, this is church and this is not a church. Church, this morning, I believe what God commands us more than anything else is to repent of the ways we have minimized each other's pain and things that we are concerned about. As we look forward to the next season, next phase, or next phase of the history of this nation in our church today, may be marked by repentance. And just as the King David models for us, may it be about doing what God commands us as a church, as follower of Christ, as a nation this morning. The final thing that we see what King David does in the first hundred days and the, what marks him for the rest of his kingship is not only doing what God commands, not only going back to the Lord consistently time and time again, the final thing that we see is don't let your heart turn away from the Lord. Do not let your heart turn away from the Lord. This is all the more important because of this little tidbit of information we find in the middle of the narrative in verse 11 through 15. It says, And Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent messenger to David, and the cedar trees, also carpenters and masons, who built David a house. And it says, And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he exalted his kingdom for the sake of the people of Israel. 
you see that David, as becomes greater and greater and greater, he is known as a mighty king in this area, and indeed a man after God's own heart. And his fame reaches the point where this Hiram, a con contemporary king, provides all the building material. And this king actually comes up again later when Solomon is building the house of the Lord. And he actually builds him a house. Isn't that nice? Wouldn't it be nice if someone says, you're such a great guy, let me build a house for you. On top of that, let me send everything your way and let me build it. Just wait, it'll be an awesome house, right? That's actually what happens to David. And David knows that it is God who exalts him. God is the one who sets him as a king and makes him great for the sake of serving God's people. That seems to be what David's kingship is all about because this pivotal information actually happens towards the end of his life. As we think about the first 100 days that are marked by David's obedience, it seems logical at the end of his life as a king, this is the right way to show it. David, all throughout his life, was obedient to God's kingdom, God's word, therefore, his house is built, and it becomes great. That's great, right? But that's not all. Not only does this pivotal information reveal to us about what David was able to do, to become great for the sake of his people, Israel. But verse 13 also talks about his personal life and the flaws of his kingship. Simply, verse 13 says, And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. If you read this in its original language, Hebrew, the concubine, the word concubine is placed front of wives intentionally to make emphasis, to remind us again, to say, David had more concubines and wives. Get that? David had more concubines than wives. And we see later on, this causes his kingdom to crumble. But we see as a result of David's heart is that not only he strived to stay close to the Lord, but we see his failure. Because the scripture reminds us in Deuteronomy 17, 17, not only does a king require to keep the law, it says in Deuteronomy 17, that the king shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. You see, not only David's kingdom was marked by obedience to God's command, but also disobedience to God's command that was given in Deuteronomy 17. And what this verdict of David's 100 days tell us today is that even in his greatness as a king, even a king who stays close to the word of the Lord, who obeys the commands of the Lord, a man who is called a man after God's own heart, he will fail. He has failed. And he is not your savior. And here's a lesson for all of us, again, as we look into the next transition of our nation. Again, whether you're candidate one or not, because either one, they have failed. And they will fail to meet our hopes and dreams to a certain degree. There is, yes, absolutely, there is hope and promise. I'm not telling you not to have them, right? We ought to have them as we look forward to the next season of a nation's life. But we also must know and remember that our national leaders will fail us. Human leaders will fail us. Even the great king, David, failed 
in fully obeying God's commandments. There is no human savior good enough to save us. There isn't someone who could take away your pain and sufferings once and for all, no matter how great of a king, no matter how great of a politician, no matter how great of a president the person may become. Then here again, what God reminds us through this narrative is that our hope and our allegiance must lie with Christ and Christ alone. And the truth must never change no matter who is in charge of the nation. That our hope and our allegiance, our dreams and our call as followers of Christ must never change because in Christ alone we place and we find our hope. And again, the grace is in this. As we read this story of David, the grace and the gospel is that God works through flawed humans. Isn't that amazing? And I'm not just talking about our political leaders today. I'm not just talking about David, who God still uses for God's glory to picture greater King Christ to come. But what I, what I want us to look at is looking at ourselves today, first and foremost. And this is the beauty of Christianity, church. The beauty of the gospel. Just look around us. Like, look at you and I. We are flawed. We're broken. But what God reminds us that he is not done with us yet. He does not give up on us. Just like God does not give up on David, even in his sin and failure. He is still at work despite our failures to obey, despite our brokenness, both in our own life and the lives of others and in the nation today. God will never give up. His kingdom will come. The revelation is still coming. And his kingdom will win out in the end. Church, we're not called to be campaign managers. We're called to be Christians, Christ followers. Campaign manager's career comes to an end when an election is over. And most campaign managers move on to the next campaign, next big thing, by opting out of their current ones because they're so exasperated by the process. Sometimes they're so exasperated, they're so disgusted by what happened, they actually leave the campaign process altogether. You know, someone recently said in this divided nation, in this polarized time in our nation, the biggest loser today is not Republicans. It's not Democrats. The biggest loser in all this is the church. In the eyes of the watching world, as our politics were so divided, so filled with demonizing and hatred with multiple name-calling, the church used scripture to defend their position, to say, you're evil, you're evil, you're evil. The very scripture to save sinners, we drew lines and pushed each other out. We have lost the battle in many ways. And I was talking to someone outside of this church, and just talking about how Christianity is so exasperating, especially as a person of color. Especially in this election season, we're saying no matter who wins, we lost. And we have seen so many people driven away from the church. So many people that want to give up in all the stuff, all the hypocrisy, all the name calling, all the hatred, all the bigotry. If this is what church is all about, why should I go to church? If this is what church is all about, 
Why am I seeing the vision of the church? Why should I support the church? I want to opt out. I don't want to be here. If this is what church is all about, this is what Christianity is all about, then perhaps this is not something that I want to be part of in the long run. And just like campaign managers, we want to be like, we're so disgusted by this. Let's opt out. Let's opt out. I'm tired from watching the world so divided. Church is divided even more. And I think it's real danger that all of us have experienced this season, that we want to opt out. We want to give up. But can I encourage us from the scripture? And can I implore you? That's not the privilege that you and I have. You and I do not have that privilege to opt out. Do you know that? Church, let me remind us again that we are, as a church, do not have the privilege to opt out of God's work. Or I should say, we have the privilege of staying in it. Our God sent his son who gave up his life, his privilege, as the Bible tells us, so he could walk on earth. But you and I can have that privilege of staying in it despite our brokenness, especially now, even in our brokenness, in the church, of the church, in the puddle of our nastiness, in the puddle of our sin, all of our sin that is called church. The scripture reminds us that you and I are still called to be part of what God is going to do through this church. Just look at the New Testament church if you don't believe me. A lot of people say, let's go back to the early church. I don't want to go back to the early church. Have you looked at what early church goes through? It's crazy. It's all kinds of craziness. People are talking bad things about it. There's like all kinds of sin that you could think of is written there. There's nothing new under the sun. But notice what Paul says time and time again. I pray for you, church. I pray for you, church. Get back together. Stop talking like that. Glory of the Lord is at stake. And again and again, what scripture reminds us is that God's glory will not be hindered by the brokenness of the church. Rather, through the brokenness of the church, God's glory may be seen. And through the brokenness of the church, God's glory will be glorified. And even the brokenness of the church is the glory of God. Because that reveals Christ can do the impossible. So when God looks at the broken church like we are today, divided church like we are today, I'm sure Paul had his headaches. <laughs> and when God looks at down at us and wonders, you again? <laughs> Same thing again? And perhaps in four years, we've got to do this again, right? But what God does is not, I give up, I opt out. What God does is just because of that, I sent my son. My son died for you, and I'm going to work in your life. So can I encourage us? Church, don't opt out. Don't give up. Especially don't give up on the church. Now, the church has to do the right thing, right? What marks the change in church is not the result of this election. It is the finished work of Christ on the cross that marks the church. What that means is the church needs to repent. We need to make sure the church is a place where marginalized people come to be part of God's kingdom. We must be a place where Christ's love is emanated. It's a place where 
those who are different is celebrated and loved. We need a church to stand for justice, racial equity, display loving kindness, boldness to stand for the truth against all kinds of lies, humility to submit to one another as Christ commands us, live life worthy of the gospel call that God gives us so that people may see and see there's something different about the church. And the grace means that we are people saved by grace in our puddle of brokenness because Christ who died for us. That's what church ought to be. But church, don't give up on church. Don't opt out. Not because what we are, who we are, is great today. Because it is hard. It is going to be hard. It is going to continue to be hard no matter who is in the office. But God said the church, and I'm not just talking about institution of a church. I'm talking about us, you and I, the body of Christ. He's not done with us yet. He is not done with us yet. Stay with us. May we not be campaign managers, but followers of Christ. May we not be campaign managers that opt out, but followers of Christ committed because of the work of Christ. And may our first steps, first hundred days after the election, be that marked by obedience to God's command. Going to the Lord, turning to the Lord, seeking the Lord, walking humbly before the Lord. And this is gospel again. He is with us. He's ever before us. And through church, the power of hell is broken. And God's grace is preached. And through church, the glory of God will be revealed. Let's pray. Join with me as we pray, shall we? As we think about all that has happened this week, all that is happening in our lives, let's come together to pray. Join with me. Father, we come as a broken people, broken people in many ways. Lord, knowingly and unknowingly we have participated in hurting one another in the body of Christ. Lord, we have used labels. We called one another by the labels and the names. Father, instead of loving them, embracing them as brothers and sisters of Christ, we label them. We call them different names that we have not displayed the love of Christ that you have called us to do so. Father, we come as a church to repent together this morning as we look forward to the next season of our church and our nation today. Teach us what it means to be embraced by your love so that we as a church can stand in our brokenness, in our mess, not turning away from your heart, but drawing closer to the heart of the Lord in humble obedience to love one another as Christ loves us, as Christ has called us to walk, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before others. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.